According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23. And we are in the very end of the chapter today. Verses 34 to the end, 34 through 39. Matthew 23, verses 34 through 39. Last week, we uh, covered the bulk of the woes here in Matthew 23. I think two weeks ago, we covered the first two of the woes. And uh, then last week, we covered three through seven. We, did, we got quite a bit done last week and uh, jumped on it pretty well. So today, I want to move on from there and wrap up uh, the remainder of this chapter and be ready for the, uh, the episodes that follow. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. And once again, we acknowledge that our even our attendance here this morning is a grace provision. That uh, You woke us up. We had the health and strength to get out of bed the transportation, the finances, the schedule, everything, Father, to be here. And I thank you that you made it possible. And Father, I thank you for the positive volition of our brothers and sisters that made uh, this Bible class their priority on this day. Father, reward that decision. Bless us in our, in our study. Equip us and feed us with that which we need to glorify your Son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All righty. I've lost track of the slide numbers, so I'll just take a guess. Close. Well, we'll back up a little bit just to see where we are. Jesus, point five in the outline. Jesus delivers seven woes in a manner reminiscent of many Old Testament prophets. Important to understand that he is a prophet, a prophet, priest, and king, but he's not serving as a king. He's not serving as a priest. In this message, he's serving as a prophet. We've got to keep that in mind for not only these woes, but also what follows in terms of the uh, prophecies that he's making here at the end of the chapter. And um, I think all too often uh, we're, we're looking at this with the hindsight of the church age and we're failing to, uh, to see that the church is still a mystery at this point of time. And he's speaking as a prophet, uh, not only uh, discussing the future for Israel, but doing so in the context of a nation that has rejected their king, that he is, he is going to have to depart. He's going to have to come back again. And uh, some of these things that we'll see in particular, uh, I'm thankful that we're hitting it uh, not only in this class, but coinciding with the uh, ministry workshop in Christology where we're dealing with the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24 and 25. So it's good that we are in this portion of Scripture at this time. But he's speaking as an Old Testament prophet and he's pronouncing woe. All right. Woe number one, they are unsaved and actively hinder the salvation of others. The uh, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, they are not entering into the kingdom and they keep others from entering in as well. Secondly, woe number two, they expend maximum satanic effort for minimum earthly results with doubled hellish consequences. And uh, this is the thing we've got to be on guard for in particular. If we start to see some uh, satanic energy 
motivating people in their thinking, their thinking and their actions and what they're doing in their conversations. We got a little bit of that going on and, and I'm shepherding against that. I'm guarding against that. We got to deal with that if it starts to creep into the assembly. We got to stop it in its tracks. So maximum satanic effort for minimum earthly results. Woe number three, blind guides. And what's interesting, they're so arrogant. They're blind and don't know it. They think they have all the answers. They think they can tell other people how to, how to live and they themselves aren't even alive. They draw fine lines in their manipulations and distortions. You know, it's not the altar, it's the temple. Or, well, it's not the altar, it's the sacrifice on the altar. And they, they have all this fine print and all of their, well, if you look at it this way kind of comments. And it's terrible. All they're doing is manipulating things. And they convince themselves, oh, well, you know, it's not really um, adultery. Or it's not really stealing. Or it's not really, you know, and they find ways to redefine their terms. Well, we're not free to do that. God's the one who's defined the terms as he's given the commands. And uh, we're, we're subject to, uh, to obey according to what he has commanded. Well, number four. Again, it's scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And we have the connection to the blind guides here in uh, verse 24. So we understand it's the same audience in all seven of these, of these rebukes. They uh, get lost in the legalistic minutia and they completely miss the big picture. For a life that pleases God. I tell you, doctrinal believers fall into the same trap as well. They get so caught up in all the Bible classes they're attending and the notebooks they're assembling and the doctrines and the knowledge that they're gathering. And they become so, I mean, they could outline 14 points of eternal security, but they don't have the hard attitude of compassion for this lost and dying world. Or, or um, what were the big items that are mentioned here? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, I'm not saying don't do those other things. We're not saying quit coming to Bible class, but don't neglect the big things um, when you get lost in this minutia. Well, number five, fixating on an external purity in complete denial of their internal corruption. And this is from verses 25 and 26. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And you think about how many believers have an external show and everybody's all impressed because they see, man, look at, you know, here's a guy and he's, he's in Bible class all the time and he's, he's uh, walking with the Lord. He's, you know, whatever, studying real hard or whatever. And no one knows the, what the internal reality is except the Lord until whatever event triggers it. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, in some cases, years and years of darkness finally pours forth and becomes evident. Well, number six, fixating on external beauty in complete denial of internal death. And uh, whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they appear beautiful. And, you know, it's just uh, interesting. I commented last week as well about how glorious those European cathedrals are. And they're like museums. And they're like uh, works of art. They're filled with works of art, but they, the buildings themselves are works of art. And you just, you walk into this and you, you, uh, it's just amazing to see what um, deadness goes on inside these, uh, inside these cathedrals. Finally, woe number seven, refusing to see where they are in the unfolding plan of God. And uh, as we were running out of time, we got to this one. You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers. Now, we're very vulnerable to that because we're church-age saints. You know, we've got all the ages before us that we can get prideful over. 
and say, yeah, you know what? If I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Nope, not me. I don't care if, um, you know, if Eve uh, gave me that fruit, I wasn't going to fall for that. Nope, not me. I would have resisted. Yeah, right. I, I, you know, I think we're just prideful when we say that. Absolutely prideful when we say that. Adam was sinless. He was uh, perfect humanity as created and uh, had none of the, uh, the weaknesses that my sin nature has. Okay. <laughs> uh, or, you know, I, I would have listened to the preaching of Noah. Oh, yeah, I sh- I'm sure I would have. I'd, have. I'd have made sure my family got on the ark. Right. Or I wouldn't have been caught up in the Tower of Babel excitement. Okay. Or all the things, right? I wouldn't be grumbling at Meribah. No, not me. And we get all this attitude, right? We get an attitude about Peter. I wouldn't deny Christ. You know? If, even if it's true, we have no way to know that it's true. We have no way to know. We, we do not have a perspective that allows us to know the counterfactuals. But even if it was true, it's, it's irrelevant uh, to anything. And since we have no way to know, no way that we can know, any statements in that regard, even any thoughts in that regard, are just expressions of pride. How do I know? I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have failed those tests. I failed tests all the time. I probably would have failed those even worse. So uh, anyway, this denial. If we'd have been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. And yet, what are they doing? They're, they're building these tombs. They're building a monument to the prophets. And, uh, you know, you, you build this fancy place where pilgrims can come and, and express their uh, appreciation or whatever for Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of these guys. And stop and ask yourself, what did they do to Isaiah? Okay, The Bible doesn't say, but the traditions are that they, they sawed him in two. You know? Um, so are you going to build a, a monument to that? <laughs> why, why does that not get mentioned when you build these these monuments to these prophets, as it were? All right. So it says you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? And this is where woe number seven comes to an end. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is they can't escape. There is no escape. The only escape is Christ, and they've rejected Christ. So how are they going to escape the sentence of hell? So there is no hope. And um, part of our testimony, if, if uh, someone you're witnessing to uh, rejects the gospel, I think it, there's actually a benefit to telling them, then, well, I'm sorry, I have no comfort for you. I have no hope for you. The only hope I can offer you is the eternal hope that comes through the, the Scriptures. And if you've made the choice to reject that, then there is no hope. There is no comfort that I can extend to you at this time. And, uh, you know, rather than try to make something up or puff them up with some kind of artificial sunshine, right? You know, rainbows and unicorns or whatever. Just say, sorry, uh, the only hope I have to offer is through the scriptures. And so there it is. All right. Now, the one woe that's not in this text is the disputed verse in verse 14, uh, where probably in brackets or with a footnote or some kind of a a mark, it will set apart verse 14 to say um, that this verse is not found in early manuscripts. Okay, And that's kind of a 
an understatement. It's, it's not found in most manuscripts, and when it does finally start showing up in later centuries, it gets put in, a, in some different places, sometimes before verse 13, sometimes after verse 15. They're not exactly sure where to put it. Um, but it's an interpolation that comes. A, a scribe added it at some point uh, based upon the parallel text in Mark and in Luke. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, if you turn over to Mark 12, you'll see actually where this verse does belong in Mark chapter 12, where it's not a woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, but it is actually part of Scripture, so we want to teach this. Mark 12, verses 38 through 40. And this is the parallel record, so I have no doubt that he spoke this, but he did not speak it as a woe, and it does not belong in the narrative of woes that Matthew records. So in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, that's all very parallel to what we've seen in Matthew. But then it goes on. Who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And so I want to just chart this out for you under main point six. Devouring widows' houses, which is Mark 12:40 and Luke 20:47. Devouring widows' houses is a vivid condemnation and one that our generation better pay attention to. It is a vivid condemnation for self-righteous religious leaders and their victimization of the vulnerable. And their victimization of the vulnerable. And I really want to chew on that. We're going to turn to Ezekiel 34 here in a moment. But the victimization of the vulnerable, which in this passage is the widow is the older woman, the widow. Uh, but it could be there could be other realms for victimization in the church age that we need to uh, we need to consider. And we've got to understand that the application applies there as well, that uh, the good shepherd is not going to be very favorable towards his under shepherd if the under shepherd views the flock as his uh, target rich environment. All right? That uh, the flock is the uh, is the hunting grounds for uh, uh, for victimization, okay? And it could be financial, oftentimes it is. It could be sexual, oftentimes it is. It could be um, it could be anything related to uh, to to different things, okay? Devouring widows' houses, and you think, and, and the stories that you get all the time related to. Uh, televangelists and how through emotionalism and guilt and other things they end up with these uh, pledges over the phone and 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 uh, you know widows older older people of, of pretty modest means that are signing over their social security checks that are just giving over all the all their substance and things because uh, well you know they love Jesus and they want to they want to be a part of something they think is uh, is is meaningful and important. And they're just being taken and taken and taken. And it, it bugs me. It bugs the Lord. I think this is a, a passage that clearly rebukes that. And Ezekiel 34 is a passage that clearly rebukes that. Um, but it doesn't have to be the elderly. I think that's just 
probably uh, in in the day that Christ spoke, it was probably um, one of the larger and more lucrative fields in which the Pharisees were finding to raise some of their funds um, as far as that goes. All right, let's look at Ezekiel 34. Let's go. Let's look at another Old Testament prophet and their messages of woe. <laughs> All right. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel. <laughs> okay, this is not a happy message. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. Uh, you were not called as a shepherd to feed yourself. And, uh, and particularly, this is an Old Testament passage. On into the church age, it's even more uh, explicit that we are here to, to love others. We're here to serve others. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And... Uh, and different things there that we need to understand. All right, now, who are the shepherds of Israel? Before we even understand the rest of this. Who are, are he's talking about literal shepherds watching actual sheep? Uh, no, no. The, the application is any spiritual shepherd. That could be their, their king, the princes, their tribal elders, their uh, priests, their Levites. Okay? Any, uh, any uh, spiritual leader is referenced here under the heading shepherds of Israel. And uh, notice now, victimizing as if the flock was for their own personal um, recreation or use. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Okay, so notice how selfish it is. Notice there's no concern for the, the sheep themselves. They're just there to be used. They're just there to be victimized. Uh, those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. Why bother? You know, you don't care about them. What does the sick sheep do for you anyway? Uh, the diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. All of this is a description of what a shepherd ought to do in the different facets of shepherding. But with force and severity you have dominated them. And typically, this is what we find in a tyrannical pastor or a tyrannical husband or a, a dictator-type situation. And it's all just force and severity. Uh, where does that... Uh, and of course, if you want to turn to 1 Peter 5, you see that that's the New Testament parallel for this text right here. Is this uh, why he's called us to be shepherds? Is this what he would have for us to do? Of course not. That's why he's pronouncing the woe here. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. You notice that in verse 5? Now they have a shepherd, but he's a faithless shepherd. And what verse 5 says, it's actually a lack of a shepherd. Because you're a plunderer, functionally speaking, these sheep don't have a shepherd. They're supposed to have a shepherd that protects them from the plunderers. But what happens when their shepherd is a plunderer? They're sheep without a shepherd. And for lack of a shepherd, they are scattered. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, remember, it's not the shepherd's flock. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. 
My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Now, here's the good news, because Jesus Christ is faithful. And, uh, and this is where um, believers don't have to be terrified or fearful that, well, what happens if my pastor goes weird? Uh, God will take care of you. Okay? This is where women don't have to be terrified. Well, what happens if my husband abandons me? What happens if my husband goes, goes weird? God will take care of you. Right? He took care of Sarah when Abraham was making stupid choices. Um, God will provide for those that are positive for his truth. And we see that here. If you're hungry for teaching, you're not going to get caught up under false teachers. God will make sure that you get under a right teacher. And he will make sure you're under a faithful shepherd. The churches that go off wild under false teachers, they want to. They want to have their ears tickled. They have the teachers according to their desire. They want to be deceived. They want to go into that false teaching. Don't ever feel like, oh, well, I want to know the truth, but somehow I got caught up in something wrong. No, God will take care of you in that, in that respect. All right. As I live, declares the Lord God. He starts off this with a vow. The God who cannot lie. This uses the language of a vow, an oath. A solemn oath. This language of as I live. Okay? It's like little kids on the playground say, cross my heart, hope to die. <laughs> now that's just childish and, you know, school kid playground type stuff. But it actually does incorporate the concept of an oath. As I live. In other words, if I am making a false statement, kill me. Right? You know, we have these throwaway lines and we shouldn't say them. It's like taking the name of the Lord in your favor. We say, I swear to God. Careful when you say that. Because you are calling the omniscient God of truth as the witness to what you're saying. And don't take that name in vain. Don't take that name lightly. So the idea of as I live. Now, as I live, when the God who cannot lie takes an oath, is that powerful? How about the eternal God saying, as I live? <laughs> That's forever. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, uh, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. The good shepherd takes care of his sheep and these false shepherds are removed. It's like we have in Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus Christ says, if, unless you repent, I am coming quickly and I will remove your lampstand from out of its place. He tells those messengers in Revelation 2 and 3, you either be a faithful shepherd or you're fired. Okay? I wonder if this is where Donald Trump got that idea. You know? That you're fired kind of a line, right? For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself, and look what he's going to do, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the people. I will. You see all the I wills in this passage? Isn't that beautiful? 
I will, I will, I will. This is the language of covenant, the language of promise. All right. So we have this now in the devouring of widows' houses. Uh, if you want the First Peter passage, it's over in chapter 5. We can, it's not on the screen, but we can add it. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. In other words, you're not just milking it for the paycheck, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. There's the force and severity you have dominated them from Ezekiel 34. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this devouring of widows' houses, anytime you see it, anytime you see where um, they're, they're just victimizing the elderly for, uh, for their money or victimizing the, uh, uh, the single women, say, um, for their loneliness or what have you. It's just terrible the way that false shepherds can victimize those that they're supposed to be caring for. And, uh, and, and you know, um, pastors, I, I try to include this in training so that pastors and their wives, future pastors and future pastors' wives are aware of this so that they can be on guard against this and praying about this because uh, it's a snare that will trip a man up quicker than anything. All right. So we deal with it there. Back to Matthew then. Back to Matthew, chapter 23. Verses 34 to the end of the chapter. There's actually, we're going to break it down into two parts, 34 through 36, and then 37 through 39. And we'll give this to you under point 7. Jesus follows the seven woes with a personal prophecy and a lament. Jesus follows the seven woes with a personal prophecy. That's verses 34 through 36. And a lament in verses 37 through 39. That's like we got everything here, don't we? We got the prophets, we got the Psalms, we got lamentations. <laughs> we have almost the whole Old Testament just right here in, Psalm, in uh, Matthew 23 as Jesus, the Old Testament prophet, is, uh, is uh, giving his farewell message to the nation that's rejected him. All right. Personal prophecy. Subpoint A. This prophecy is personal because Jesus promises to personally send divine messengers. This prophecy is personal. Because Jesus promises to personally send divine messengers. This isn't the Father sending these messengers. It's Jesus sending these messengers. And this is unusual. This jumps right out at us. So he follows up, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell with, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. I. Okay. And he ends in verse 36 with, Truly I say to you, I. 
He himself is sending. This isn't the Father sending. This is actually so unusual because all through the life of Christ, for 342 messages, 343 messages now, everything's been focused back on the Father. My message is not mine. It's the Father's who sent me. Um, the works that I do are not mine, but those of the Father's who sent me. I come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And everything about Him who sent me, Him who sent me, Him who sent me, right? And you see it so many times, you just expect to see it every time you turn around. And so here, He doesn't say, Behold, the Father will send you. All right? And even uh, not too long ago, we had that parable of the, of the landowner, remember? Who sent servants, and they got beaten, and He sent more slaves, and they got beaten. And then He said, I will send my son. They will respect my son. And then, you know, they seized the son to kill him so they could claim the inheritance. Um, everything up till now has been about what the Father has sent, the Father's message, the Father's truth. But this is now a promise that Jesus says, I'm going to send. I'm going to send. And that's interesting. and grabs your attention. I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And this is a, a really interesting prophecy. Now, we've got to keep in mind, there are, um, when Old Testament prophets prophesied, uh, let me ask you a question here. Can you tell me what, uh, oh, how do I phrase this? Old Testament prophets would give two kinds of messages, two kinds of prophetic messages, typically. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Any ideas, Doug? Yes, yes, that's what I'm getting at. Usually what we call a short-term and a long-term prophecy. Okay, short-term prophecies, long-term prophecies. And oftentimes they would even be blended within the same message. Okay, or they would come in, in consecutive messages and so forth. So a short-term prophecy. Um, like Isaiah talking about the deliverance against the Assyrians, okay, for example. And don't be afraid of, of the siege of Jerusalem. That's going to be lifted. Short-term prophecy, okay? But, but then when that's fulfilled, typically within the lifetime of the, of the people who heard him or, or even within you know, an even shorter time than that, but it becomes a testimony that we can pay attention to these long-term prophecies as well. Like, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, right? And so Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah have a baby of their own, but that is only a foreshadowing of another baby on the way, one that's going to be virgin born in Bethlehem and is going to be the, the savior of the world, okay? So you understand, short-term prophecies, long-term prophecies. Now, in Matthew 24 and 25, we're going to start getting into some very long-term prophecies. We're going to get into the Mount Olivet Discourse. We're going to learn about the tribulation of Israel. We're going to learn about Armageddon. We're going to learn about Second Advent. There's going to be some things that, from the time Christ spoke it, are still 2,000 years away and more. All right? But what we have here in Matthew 23, before we get to the Olivet Discourse, we have here a short-term prophecy. I am sending... Jesus himself personally, prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now, understand what's happening here, because if, if you try to view this as tribulation, you've got big problems. Okay? Because in, in the tribulation, Israel, the Jews, are the martyrs. The Jews are the ones that are being abused because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's the Gentiles, and the Antichrist, and, and, and 
the revived Roman Empire and so forth. It's the, the, the faithful Jewish remnant in the tribulation are being martyred for their faith. But that here, it's the Jews that are the uh, inflictors of the, of the martyrdom, right? They are uh, murdering, killing, crucifying, scourging in the synagogues, persecuting from city to city, okay? Think about Saul of Tarsus ravaging from Jerusalem to Damascus, for example. So what we have here is we have a short-term prophecy that's going to show how in the very near term, these religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, are going to become, uh, are going to become uh, persecutors. They're going to become murderers. And why not? I mean, after all, after they've crucified the Christ, all bets are off at that point. You know, uh, it's like the, the barn door is open and that horse is out of the stable. So they've already crucified the Christ. Uh, it's nothing then to just turn it into mass murder against anyone that names the name of Christ. And it becomes open season on the way, on anyone that follows the Nazarene. Okay? Now notice there's a, con- this, there's a purpose for this, so that upon you, that is this generation here that he's talking to, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. The guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Universal judgment is is falling. And cumulative wrath has been reserved, has been withheld, has been delayed. But it's all being compiled now. It's all going to come crashing down on this generation. Truly I say to you, these things will come upon this generation. Pay attention to that phrase because there's a lot of confusion related to that phrase in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Okay? Specifically, um, Matthew 24, 34 is where we've got to be cautious with it. Now, this prophecy is personal because Jesus promises to personally send divine messengers. Now, he does not yet unfold the mystery of the church. Okay, although that's what he's talking about. He uh, he doesn't say, behold, it's a new dispensation and they're going to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know that's the truth only because of our hindsight. He still is going to use Old Testament language to talk about a new coming reality. And he calls them prophets, wise men and scribes. That's not really a concern. So let's take a look at it. Some point one prophets, wise men and scribes. It uses terminology that his immediate audience would relate to. He uses terminology. I mean, if he says apostles, what are they going to, what are they going to do with that? Okay. Prophets, wise men, and scribes uses terminology that his immediate audience would relate to, and in a context that alludes to the close of the Old Testament and the destruction of the first temple. You know, the Old Testament is Genesis to Chronicles. Okay. Now, there were some things that happened after Chronicles in the sense of Ezra, Nehemiah, the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. But as it was compiled in the segments of the, te- of the text, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, it ends with the writings, it ends with Chronicles. 
And the last recorded martyr in Chronicles is this Zechariah guy that we'll see here in a moment. And of course, the first recorded martyr in, in Genesis is Abel, when Cain murders Abel. Prophets, wise men, and scribes uses terminology that his immediate audience would relate to and in a context that alludes to the close of the Old Testament and the destruction of the first temple. So hold your finger here and let's look back to Second Chronicles 36. Let's look to the end of the Hebrew canon. And it's only slightly confusing to us because our books of the, Bible, of the Old Testament are in different order, right? We look at Second Chronicles and say, well, that's not the end of the Old Testament. There's still Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and all the, you know, all the prophets down to Malachi. We say Genesis to Malachi. Jesus said, Abel to Zechariah. He said, Genesis to Chronicles. And that's, uh, that's actually compatible to the books of the Hebrew Bible. Now, what do we have in Second Chronicles 36? Verses 15 through 19. Now, let's see. In chapter 36, you've got, well, the last good king dies in chapter 35, and then you've got a bunch of losers, all bad kings in chapter 36. So, um, Jehoahaz is a wicked king, and Jehoiakim is a wicked king, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to take these guys captive, and then finally, uh, Jehoiachin will be... Uh, taken captive another wicked king okay, they're all bad in chapter 36 the last good one dies that's josiah in the end of 35 and then um the plunder of jerusalem in verse 10 at the turn of the year king nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the lord and he made his kinsman zedekiah king over judah and jerusalem now what's interesting about zedekiah um Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, Zedekiah is a brother, not a son, of the last legitimate king. He was appointed as king over uh, Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, but he's not in the line of Christ. He's not in the legal line. He's not, um, not even legitimate in, in, in a lot of ways, although he is a, a son of the previous king. So there's, he does have a claim. But the line of Christ does not come through Zedekiah. We need to understand that. He's a puppet king. And he's an evil king. And uh, he too is going to rebel in verse 13. Rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. So he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is at least smart enough to say, swear me a, 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 an oath of loyalty by Elohim. And now he's uh, an oath breaker. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So can it get any worse than this? All right. But notice, <laughs> notice, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again 
and again. And, and the language here is very similar to what we have Jesus saying, I will send you messengers, okay? So the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is now promising them, that I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And you're going to scourge them. You're going to mock them. You're going to crucify them. There is no remedy. Jerusalem will be destroyed in 70 A.D. So therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. Little babies. Everybody. Okay? No mercy. You say, this is terrible. It is terrible. But understand what he did years before this. Because he's already preserved his remnant. He already has taken, in 605 B.C., he took Daniel and his friends into captivity in, in Babylon. And then in 597 B.C., he took Ezekiel and 10,000 others into captivity in Babylon. He already preserved his remnant. And he preserved his remnant in 597, long before, you know, 11 years before this event. He'd already preserved the remnant. And this group here is the group that is given over unto destruction. All right. Well, you can read the rest of that. It's a pretty pretty tragic deal. So here's how the uh here's how the Old Testament comes to a close. Of course, you have 22 through 23 there that kind of is a postscript that demonstrates how uh, Cyrus permits the return after the 70 years of the captivity. All right. So prophets, wise men, and scribes uses terminology that his immediate audience would relate to and in a context that alludes to the close of the Old Testament and the destruction of the first temple. So do you see the parallel here with this? This is now he's anticipating the destruction of the second temple, right? And he's using that same language that there is no remedy. They are crucifying the Christ. They're even going to very tauntingly, arrogantly, boastfully demand They'll say, His blood be on us and on our children. Oh, man. And that's just a willful, defiant, angry, satanic. Um, all right. You got it coming. <laughs> Here it comes. It's interesting. When he talks about the wisdom of God, I myself will send you. Uh, point two then. And we've, I've done a little bit of this all throughout this episode. I've gone back to discuss that earlier message by Luke. The one that's recorded in, in um, Luke 11. So, before we get back to Matthew 23, let's look at Luke 11. The earlier message recorded by Luke referenced the wisdom of God sending prophets and apostles. And I didn't comment on it at the time. I don't think I even understood at the time what was being spoken of here. The earlier message recorded by Luke referenced the wisdom of God sending prophets and apostles in a way that could not totally be understood until the mystery of the church was unveiled. And that's what's happening here. The mystery of the church is not unveiled, but he is talking about God the Son, Jesus Christ, sending heavenly communicators. Communicators with a heavenly message. 
And in Luke 11, he even uses the term apostle, apostle and prophet. Luke 11:49. For this reason also, and the same thing, woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets and your witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you built their tombs. All right. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some of them they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Okay. Same language we have in Matthew 23. Who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. It's actually a better text in Luke 11.51 because it doesn't improperly assign Berechiah as the father of Zechariah the way Matthew does. So that's all right. But from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, from Genesis to Chronicles, from Alpha to Omega, okay, every martyr, every drop of righteous blood that's ever been shed under satanic motivation is going to be answered for in this generation. It's going to be answered uh, by the generation that crucifies the Christ. Um, Now, you understand why in Luke where he's called the wisdom of God is going to send and in Matthew Jesus says, I am going to send. It's because Jesus is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is one of his titles, like Logos in John 1. Wisdom, Proverbs 8, is a title for God the Son, the God-man, the the begotten Son of God. Not only do you have it in Proverbs 8, 12, but you also have it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 24 and 30. Wisdom is one of his titles. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is one of his titles. And so when Luke says the wisdom is going to send apostles and prophets and Matthew says, I myself will send prophets and wise men and scribes. We understand that these are parallel messages and they're saying the same thing. All right. And yet, are the Pharisees going to grasp anything related to the church just in this warning? No. They're not going to have a clue. All they know is that Jesus says he's going to send them messengers and that they're going to abuse them. They're going to put them to death. They're going to not like the messengers that Jesus sends them. And we're going to find that's fulfilled all throughout the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts. Okay, at least up through the first 11 chapters, right? Uh, if you want scripture on the mystery, it's Ephesians 3.5. The mystery of the church was not revealed and in previous generations was not made known as it has now been made known. Are you familiar with Ephesians 3.5? You better be. All right, if not, let me introduce you. The mystery of Christ. 
which is introduced in verse 4, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit or by the Spirit. It is church age information. Not known. Israel didn't know about it. The Gentiles before Israel didn't know about it. The angels didn't know about it. Our current stewardship where you and I operate in the church age was not revealed in the Old Testament. Only glimmers and hints and, and, and allusions to the coming days, but nothing specific was revealed until the Holy Spirit revealed it to the apostles and prophets through the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That Jew and Gentile will be one body together in Christ. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. Our whole stewardship was a mystery, unrevealed. So, Jesus is speaking in, in our Matthew text today. He is talking about church age apostles and prophets that will be warning Jewish religious leaders. Okay. And he is speaking of something that will be fulfilled in the earliest days of the church. But he's not breaking the mystery of the church. That's what I'm trying to say in these two points. Does that make sense? Is that coming across? Okay. You know, it's like uh, there's some dispensational critics who struggle with it, who think that, well, how could he talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. if that's part of the church age and the church age is a mystery? Well, it transpires within the church age, but that doesn't mean that it's unfolding the mystery of the church age. It's just a future event. Same thing here. The uh, persecution of the scribes and wise men and, and prophets. Now, the, um, it is kind of interesting, and I think it's something that we've got to consider as we study the book of Acts. I'm thankful. I don't know that Warren Dowd will ever have another opportunity to get up here and teach the book of Acts. But in the lessons that he's taught and in the chapters that we've covered, uh, the dynamic between the early church and the Holdouts, <laughs> the carryovers, the the uh, the religious leaders within Jerusalem, within Israel. It is interesting to see uh, how that dynamic is at work, because for the first time since Abraham, Jews are no longer the stewards. They are no longer the 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 ones entrusted with God's unfolding plan that's been taken from them. OK, not forever, not permanently, but for a season, uh, they are no longer the stewards. They are no longer the ones entrusted with God's oracles. Now there's these, this other body entrusted with God's oracles and they have messages, messages for the original stewards. That's unique. It's interesting. We ought to pay more attention to that. Um, and we've got just a few minutes left. We'll have to come back. To, I really thought we'd gain more ground today. Uh, but let's, let's deal with this and whatever we don't cover today. Let's understand one of the earliest roles of the church you say, well, the Great Commission is make disciples of all the nations, right? That the church was assigned just to go to the uttermost parts of the earth? No. They were start, told to start with Jerusalem. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. It was supposed to start with Jerusalem. One of the earliest roles of the church was to serve as a warning to national Israel that their stewardship had been suspended. That their stewardship had been suspended. And that their city and temple were facing an imminent destruction. It was one of the earliest roles of the church. It's a role that ended in 70 A.D. 
you, you no longer have to give warnings when the when the event is complete. <laughs> right? You know, I believe Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets, uh, I believe they stopped warning of the destruction of Jerusalem after 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed. After Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, demolishes the temple, carries them all off into slavery, um, in, in the 70 years that followed, those prophets did not continue to warn about the destruction of Jerusalem. They continued to, they started to, promise about the restoration they started to promise about the the return they started to warn about repentance and they it's it's ludicrous to warn about something after it's done right noah quit warning about the coming flood when he got in the ark (laughs) and never again did he preach a message about beware the flood is on the way okay (laughs) and yet we chuckle we chuckle but this is the, the exact truth of the matter as far as what the gift of tongues was designed to be. The gift of tongues was promised to Israel that when they heard Gentiles speaking their language, that when they heard God's word coming through Gentile languages, the babbling tongues, that they were in trouble. And it was a warning. And so let's look at Isaiah 28 and uh, just give this one to you. And when we come back in a week, I, I want to spell it out even more. It's, it's not fair to try to teach this in five minutes. Okay. Because it, it truly is something that has to be. And we taught it in our first Corinthians series when we taught about the cessation of uh, tongues. But Isaiah 28 verses 11 through 13. I'll just give you a teaser today and we'll come back to it next week. And why is tongues different from prophecy? Why is tongues different from word of knowledge? Why is prophecy, why is tongues, of all the nine temporary gifts, eight of them ended when the canon was complete. Only one of them ended in a different way. Only one of them ceased. The others were done away with. Why is that? Why is that different? Why is tongues unique among all these other things? Why was tongues what was spotlighted on the day of Pentecost and not prophecy? Okay. We have to spend some time with this. But Isaiah 28. And uh, this is where Israel is so mocking. And their prophets are a bunch of drunks. Um, hmm. verse 7 I read just because I like it makes me laugh these uh, also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink they are confused by wine they stagger from strong drink they reel while having visions Okay, you think it's hard to drive while under the influence Try prophesying under the influence, okay? They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. <laughs> so you got the vivid picture here. Their, their nation is a wreck. And uh, just like our nation's a wreck. And the answer isn't political, economic, military. 
It's not, uh, we shouldn't be looking to, uh, you know, Sarah Palin or anyone else that might win an election next November. I like Sarah. She's a believer. But our answers aren't political. We need pastors teaching the whole council. And not uh, drunk on their own whatever. Now, verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he, would he interpret the message? That's an interesting rhetorical question. Who is entitled to the Word of God? Who is, who is worthy? Who is entitled? Who ought to learn what God has to say? To those just weaned from the milk? Those just taken from the breast? Now, this might come across as something that's being mocked, but it's actually the right answer. Because babies are humble enough to drink the milk they're fed. <laughs> and what are we told in First Peter? Like newborn babes long after the pure milk of the Word. And it may be, that's why I'm loving Sunday nights here lately in our Scripture memory classes, because we got these little, little kids in the room with us. And I love it. And they're learning the same Bible verses we're learning. And they're doing better than I am, trying to learn some of these Bible verses. And I'm loving it. It's an enjoyable class. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. A little here, a little there. And the, uh, the Hebrew on this is almost like baby talk. It's almost like uh, just a little blah, 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 you know, the, that a baby would do. And yet it's so true. Order on order, line on line. A little here, a little there. Indeed, he will. Here's the prophecy now. He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Man, if you understand, from the time of Abraham on, God's messengers have been Hebrew speaking. God's messengers have been Jews. They've had the message for the Gentiles. But now he's going to speak to his people with stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And that ought to get their attention. Instead, they say, they've got to be drunk. <laughs> right? Acts chapter 2. These men are all drunk. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that, here's the promise, they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Tongues is a sign of national captivity. It is a sign of national captivity. All right, we'll come back and touch on this some more. I think it's important. In uh, Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have the uh, New Testament's uh, doctrine that, that unfolds this chapter for us to where we understand what the purpose of tongues is, what the purpose of prophecy is, what the early church was all about. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the privilege we have to study a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. And uh, this, this passage here is teaching us what the hermeneutic ought to be. And I thank you for that. So, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, as we rightly divide the word of truth, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we seek your explanation for your promises, Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding and teach us very clearly what it is we need to understand for the glory of your Son, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.